Today's reading is from Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impu impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. I want to start this sermon, I'm just, you know, within the last six months or so, for the first time I, I was referred to, someone referred to me as a middle-aged man. And I didn't think I was that, but you know what? I, I kind of thought, well, they sort of have a point. Uh, and so now I'm just embracing my full middle-agedness, and especially how I begin this sermon. I'm worried about the youth of today. I'm very worried about the youth of, the t of today. Um, and I'm worried because I feel like they're missing out on some essential rites of passage that previous generations, I mean, at least the, the, my generation and, and even the two before it, could simply take for granted. And one of those most important rites of passage is when you remember what, what was the first, you know, record or the first tape or the first CD that, that you bought, that, that you got. You know, what will the kids remember now? What, what are they going to think of? What was the first album that they streamed? I mean, how, how does that even work? They don't even have to download the record now off of, you know, when, when I was in college, we, we had Napster for one semester, and then we had LimeWire. So you could say, what was the first, you know, one that I, I got off of the internet? And so uh, it's this indelible moment, really, for me, remembering what was that first record, that first album that I got for myself. And I'm sure as I say that, some of you, it pops in your mind. Anyone remember? First tape? Oh, yeah, Drew, what was it? MC Hammer? Which one? Too Legit to Quit. Okay, yeah, the Too Legit record. His third, I think it was technically his third album, but really his second popular one, for sure. Anyone else remember? Patrick, what? Elvis's Greatest Hits, yes. Oh, Carolyn in the back. The Mamas and the Papas. I thought it was going to be Lawrence Welk, so... Um, <laughs> oh, Katie. DC Talk, yes, okay. Oh, that's beautiful. Pastor's child. DC Talk. Well, uh, 
I remember, actually, I'm not going to bore you with the detail. I remember each, I sort of quickly passed through each medium in my childhood of record, tape, and then CD. I won't bore you with each. But Drew, I feel like me and you have a lot in common. And the more I learn, the more I discover this. Because my first tape that I bought for myself was, was the record before Too Legit was the 1990 Hammer tape, MC Hammer tape, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. And that was the one that gave Hammer's kind of earliest hit, the, the You Can't Touch This song, single, which was super popular. But there was a deep cut on that album. It was actually the third single that was released that pertains directly to our sermon today. Maybe, maybe you have a guess of what I'm talking about, but it was a song that sampled our own princes, uh, uh, When Doves Cry. And it was the song on which Hammer rapped. He, he rapped these words in the chorus. He says, he says, we've got to pray just to make it today. That's why we pray, pray. Anyone remember that? Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Hammer was rapping about prayer. And he was speaking to my soul at that moment. I loved that song on that tape. And, and, and all kidding aside, well, the song is not a great song. And Hammer, I don't think, was like a great rapper. The sentiment behind it, absolutely true. To be a Christian is to be a person of prayer every single day. And so now we're in you know, week two out of five of this, this Elevate sermon series, and, and we're going to be looking at, as we go along with this campaign, it's not, you know, focusing on what we're giving to in this time, but we're focusing on what we're giving from, cultivating the kind of hearts that, that will respond to this challenge that God has placed before us, elevating our practices of discipleship so that at the end of the day, what's transformed is not just our building, but our hearts, our lives, our, our walks with the Lord. And so last week, we looked at elevating our understanding and our practices of worship, and that was really the kickoff sermon. And so if you didn't get a chance to hear it, I encourage you, you know, even if you've never done it before, go back and listen to that, Uh, you know, because I think that that worship is really at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the the proper response of when you see Jesus for who he really is and and understand what he's truly done for us, we respond with, with, with praise, with worship. And so if worship is central to the Christian life, then then prayer is the act that is at the heart of worship. And prayer isn't something that's unique to Christianity. Almost all religions encourage prayer of some sort. Prayer is one of those things that even people who who don't believe in in God find themselves doing at, at moments of desperation in their lives. The old saying, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes. And you could say, well, you know, prayer is just a crutch for desperate people. But I think prayer, as this universal human phenomenon, it, it is really where we see people truly at their most human. We pray when we're scared, when we feel like we've lost control, when we're in danger, when we're lost, when, when we're totally hopeless. And so prayer is that most human response to the human condition, our mortality, our finitude. Where, where the myth gets shattered that, that we are, you know, masters of fate or captains of our own souls. And so prayer is an expression of the universal truth that as human beings, we need help from a force that is outside of ourselves, that only that can provide. And so it's a universal phenomenon, but for Christians... The God who we pray to isn't hidden, isn't unknown. We we pray to a God that we know because Jesus has revealed him most perfectly to us. And the reason that we pray, it's more than God commanded us to to do so, which he did. But because we have this sure and this certain conviction that prayer works, and prayer works because God listens. 
The great 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth, he gave a series of lectures just after the Second World War on, on prayer. And it was transcribed by some of his students who were listening, and then eventually was turned into a wonderful little book, a short, pretty short book, um, entitled simply Prayer. And I first read it six years ago, and when I went back to it this week, I was struck by a couple of statements that he makes right at the beginning of this book that to me were very captured some very, very powerful sentiments that are true about prayer. The first thing he said was this. He said, to be a Christian and to pray are one and the same thing. It is a matter that cannot be left to our caprice. It is a need, a kind of breathing necessary to life. In other words, Karl Barth is saying, we've got to pray just to make it today. But next he said this, which is, is so much more astounding on how, how prayer works. He says, God is not deaf, but listens. More than that, he acts. And God does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. That's a powerful statement about prayer working. Prayer exerts influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. So our prayers matter to God. Prayer does something to God. It's our way to exert influence upon God. I read that, and I'm like, that's too much. There's no way that can be true, can it? Doesn't it impinge upon God's freedom, God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence? But Bart, he anticipated this objection, and he said, the fact that God yields to human petitions, that he alters his intentions and follows the bent of our prayers is not a sign of weakness in his own majesty and in the splendor of his might. He has willed and yet wills it so. And therein lies his glory, his omnipotence. God does not then impair himself by yielding to our prayers. On the contrary, it is in so doing that he reveals his greatness. Prayer works because God has chosen to be the God who both listens to our prayers and the God who answers them. And when you even start to wrap your mind around the idea that the God of the universe would be influenced by our puny prayers and our petty petitions, it's almost too much to believe. But when we find ourselves becoming incredulous, we need only turn to passages like our scripture for this morning and learn from Jesus. So Jesus himself was praying. He was spending time in prayer, as was his, his, his practice and his pattern, when one of his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus answered them. He didn't say, well, prayer is pointless. It doesn't exert any influence upon God. Don't need to pray. He already knows what you need already. No, so he said, pray. When you pray, pray like this. And so we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to learn from Jesus, you know, what what we're supposed to pray for, how we're supposed to pray, kind of the spirit in which we pray, and lastly, who it is that we're praying to. And before I do that, I just want to preface all this by saying that at the heart of what we're asking everyone to do as part of this campaign is pray. Pray. We have made the the campaign prayer guide, which which Bridget Nelson uh, assembled for us and put together. We have made it available in like every conceivable format. It is super convenient. Derek Reimer did the website and he even made it so that at the top of the prayer page, like the day's prayer with links to the scripture pops up. So it is super easy to be praying. And so I adjure you as your pastor, I, I, I earnestly and strongly encourage you, please be praying every single day. And if you haven't already, who cares? Just get started on it today. That, that, that's what we need.
for this campaign to work. And if we really believe that God listens and God is impacted by our prayers, how much more should we be praying together for this? We've got to pray. You know, we, MC Hammer's right, Carl Bart's right. We collectively have got to pray just to make it today. All right, so let's, let's dive in now to what this passage has to teach us about elevating our practices and our understanding of prayer. So first, what should we pray for? There's a you know, million things we could be praying for in this world, but this is what Jesus focuses our attention on. And, and it covers verse two through four of our passage, which are Luke's slightly shorter version than Matthew's uh, of the Lord's prayer. But the spirit and the content are largely the same. And so what we see here is that the first things that we're supposed to pray for have to do with God and not our own needs. And so proper prayer, it, it focuses us on God and it moves the focus from ourselves. And so we're to care more about God's name, God's kingdom, and God's cause than, than the things that we want or the things that we feel that we need. And so properly ordered prayer, it, it reflects properly ordered loves. God first, us second. So the first thing we're supposed to pray for is for the hallowing of God's name. Just celebrated Halloween. All Hallows Eve, the day before All Saints Day, which was November 1st. So All Saints Eve, because it's a day that belongs to the holy, to the hallowed. And so hallowing, hallowed, has to do with being holy, which means being set apart for God. And so when we pray for God to hallow his name, we're praying that our actions, our words, our our thoughts, our behaviors would reflect on God's name, which has everything to do with God but God's reputation in such a way that that brings glory and honor to him. That God would be elevated through what we say and what we do. And we pray this prayer, it's acknowledging the fact that that whether we like it or not, when we're a Christian, we're we're like someone who's kind of moving through life with 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 a Jesus fish, you know, like a car with a Jesus fish on the bumper. To be a Christian is to bear the mark of Christ on us. And so how we act reflects on God's name and God's reputation. And so if someone has a Jesus fish on their car and they're a terrible driver, they cut you off, they're rude to you, they yell at you, they make an obscene gesture to you, they steal your parking spot, what do you think? This isn't, it's worse than if they didn't have it. It's not just a jerk. It's, oh, you're a Christian and a jerk, which makes it like a hundred times worse. You know, it, 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 it sort of is like salt in the wound. It's like, you're supposed to be better than that. I think the Darwin fish does the same thing, right? You know, if someone has that one too, it's like, oh, you think you're better than me, huh? Well, when we pray to hallow God's name, we're praying that we would treat God's name and we we, would treat the things of God in all aspects of our life with the proper reverence so that God's character might be revealed to the world through us. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying against thoughtless prayer, selfish attitudes towards worship, apathy towards scripture, against choosing culture over Christ, parsimoniousness over generosity, convenience over justice, and, and against all of the manifold ways we, we, we compromise God's name and God's ways to make life easier for ourselves. The next thing that Jesus says to pray for is, thy kingdom come. And so when we pray for the kingdom of God, we're praying for God to make the life and the purpose of this world agree with his intentions. 
and to show us where this is already taking place. And so Bart, he uses this wonderful illustration of a, of a table that's covered by a cloth. And so he says, and well, here we have a table with a cloth right here, so an illustration. He says that the, the kingdom is like the table. It's the rock-solid thing of reality. And he's like, the world, everything we make it, politics, our lives, our families, our concerns, that's like the, like the tablecloth. And he says, what we're praying for when we pray that thy kingdom come is that God would move up the cloth and so we could see reality the way it truly is. And so often we get it twisted, we get it flipped. We think sort of the real thing is, you know, the real world, the, the nitty-gritty of life, that's the solid real stuff. And the kingdom is kind of a nice, you know, doily cover that we put on top of it that gives a nice patina and sheen to life. And Jesus is saying that it's actually just the opposite, that, that kingdom is, the kingdom is reality. The kingdom is how the world is truly supposed to be. And so when we say, thy kingdom come, we mean, God, show us the world for what it truly is and what it truly looks like when it's under your command, when things are as they, as they should be, when, when, when it, the world is like what Amos pictures, you know, justice rolling down like waters and, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so when we, 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 we pray the Elevate campaign, we're saying, God, let your kingdom come so that every kind of person is welcome to the table. And no one will be told because of their physical condition that they can't come in. You know, when we pray that prayer, we know which one of those two things is, is closer to the reality of how God wants them to be. Is the reality God wants what it is now or what it will be? There's not even a question. All right, so first we pray for the things of God before we get to asking for those things for ourselves. But we do pray for things for ourselves. There's no sacred, secular divide when it comes to prayer. God is Lord over all, and so God cares for each and every aspect of our lives. Everything belongs to God, and so we can ask God for everything that we need. And the us-focused portion of, of prayer, uh, it deals with our present needs, so pray Give us this daily bread. It, it, it deals with our past failures. Forgive us our, our debts. Forgive us our sins. And, and it also deals with our future trials. So, so our, our needs are our past, present, and future. And so the first thing we pray for is daily bread. And, and the language here, it, it denotes just enough. Just enough bread for today. And so truly, every meal we eat, it, it's an answer to this prayer. Every time... You know, we reach into the dresser or the closet and we have clothes to put on our back. That's an answer to this prayer. Every time we're able to, to pay the rent on time or to pay our mortgage, that's an answer to this prayer. And so in praying this prayer, in praying for daily bread, God wants us to learn a word that our culture struggles a lot with. This concept of enough. Having enough. Just enough that we need so that we can use the excess to bless other people because everything belongs to God anyway. And as Amy talked about earlier, right, we're, we're wrestling together with this concept of enough. What does enough look like for our family so that we can give back to God what belongs to God already to bless others? You know, how much bread are we going to try to sort of squirrel away here or squirrel away there? Or, or do we really trust God? That if we respond to him generously, he is going to make sure that we can provide clothes for our kids, food for our family, and a roof over our heads. Are we going to be willing to, to sacrifice, you know, small greeds in order to meet the needs of others? 
And so we pray for daily bread. We're praying for that. We're praying for enough to understand what enough means. And then we pray for forgiveness. And this comes at the perfect time in the prayer from our past failures. Because, you know, we're praying to hallow God's name and we're saying your kingdom come and we're saying, God, help us learn what it means to just have enough and be thankful with that. And immediately we come to this realization of how far we have fallen short in these areas, how much we've missed the mark, how off base we have been. We realize that, that before God, we are like an insolvent debtor. We can't even make the minimum payments and the interest just keeps running up higher and higher and we're more underwater with each passing moment. And so we, 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 we cry, forgive us. And this excludes any pretense on our part, any sense that we have this claim that we can make on God. But the good news, the whole Christian gospel is that we don't have to make a claim on God, but God has claimed us through the work of Christ. And the forgiveness we pray for, it's only possible because Jesus, his last words on the cross in John are, it is finished, which is the Greek word, which means the debt is paid. It's done. It's gone. You don't owe me anything. You're free. I like that part of, of praying, God, forgive me. That is paid. But then we got to get to the part of forgiving others. And forgiveness, I think human forgiveness is really a miracle. That's why we got to pray for it, because it's only with God's help that we can really forgive. Yeah, I, I struggle with forgiveness. I really struggle with it, especially when I feel this kind of righteous indignation. You know, when, when Greg was born, there were a few people in our lives who I felt like they, they were good friends and they just ghosted our family. And I just go, oh, how could you do that? How could you ever do that to me? I'm filled with righteous indignation. And yet what I am, am commanded to forgive, it pales in comparison, pales in comparison to what I've been forgiven. And so in order for our world to experience, you know, shalom, God's peace, God's wholeness, at some point, this record has got to get wiped clean. Otherwise, we're going to destroy each other as we just pile up grievance after grievance after grievance with one another. And I do think one of the markers of our age is we do live in an age of grievance. Grievance, anger, anger is a much more powerful motivating force than love. All right, you want to get someone to do something, make them angry. Or, or you know, that'll drive clicks. And we can get people to, you know try to cancel other people or dogpile other people or publicly shame people. And so in such an age, I truly believe that forgiveness is a scandal. You know, what are the three most powerful words in the English language? Some have said it's I love you. Those are powerful words. They're probably the second most three powerful words. I think I forgive you. I forgive you. Probably I am sorry and I forgive you. Those go hand in hand. Those are extremely powerful words. So we pray for not just forgiveness, but the power to forgive. And the last thing we pray for is help in future trials. Lead us not into temptation. Basically, God's saying, don't let us, you know, start playing for the wrong team. Become co-workers with the enemy. It, it, you know, if you've read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, don't let us go work for, you know, Uncle Screwtape. There's enough devil's advocates in the world already. And so we aren't concerned with lead us not into temptation. There are minor trials that we can resist on our own volition. There are little trials that we face that help us build our character up, our perseverance, our faith. We're concerned here with, with the great temptation that delivers us into the hands of the evil one. So that's, that's what we pray for. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop his teaching on prayer with just what we should pray for. To truly elevate our, our prayer practices, we can't stop there. Because just as important as, 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 as what we're praying for is, is how we pray, which is really, really closely tied to our understanding of who we are praying to. And so wonderfully, when Jesus is explaining how we should pray, he tells a story. The story of, of a man who gets an unexpected visitor in the middle of the night. And so the customs of, of Middle Eastern hospitality demand that when you get a visitor, no matter what the hour, you'll provide them with, with a place to, to rest and with food. There's just one little problem. It's the middle of the night, and this man is out of bread. So he's faced with the, this dilemma. What can he do? He can either be a rude host to his guest, or he can go and bother his neighbor, who he knows has some bread left over from that day. And so the man, he goes, and he, and he knocks on his friend's door. You know, when it's middle of the night, knocks on his door. And peasant homes, you know, they were one room. You're all sleeping, your family. He says, my family's with me in bed. It's loud. You're all together in the same room in one bed. And so his friend's like, stop, I cannot do this for you without waking everyone up. And I, and I don't know about you, I hate up getting in the middle of the night. Like just to go to the bathroom, it's, it's awful to get up in the middle of the night. But rarely, on the rare occasions, my children come to me in the middle of the night. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Unless there is a knife-wielding psychopath outside of your window, never come to my room and wake me up when I'm sleeping. Even if you, you, know, you threw up in bed, like just put a towel on it and go back to bed and we'll deal with it in the morning. I mean, that's how I feel, if I'm being honest. That's just how I feel. Dad needs to sleep. But Jesus says, he's like, even though the man's not gonna get up to fulfill this request because it's from his friend, he will do it because of his friends. And here's this beautiful word, impudence. That's a great word, impudence. What does impudence mean? It means kind of disrespectful, shameless rudeness. Impudence is making a crazily inconvenient request of someone without regard to whether or not it's appropriate or comfortable or timely for them. So what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that God is like a sleeping friend? No, this is not an allegory. It's a parable. Parables have one point. Allegories are like, you know, the book Animal Farm where the, you know, all the pigs stand for just different communist party leaders and, you know, each character corresponds to the real world. Parable, not so. It's got one point it's trying to make. And so the reason Jesus told this story wasn't to teach us how God is like or how God listens to our prayers, but instead about how we're supposed to pray, the spirit we're supposed to pray in. So if I were to, you know, say free word association, here's some, give me some adverbs on how you're supposed to pray. I'm guessing I'd hear, well, we should pray reverently or solemnly, piously, fervently, poetically, silently, that kind of stuff. But Jesus is saying that when we pray the kind of prayer that he taught in verses two through four, we should do so shamelessly. So how should we pray? Shamelessly. We, we want to elevate our prayer life. We have got to be shameless, meaning we don't hold anything back. We don't censor ourselves when we pray. We, 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 we say what we really mean. We ask for what we really need, and we don't give up. And we don't worry that we're bothering God or you know, we're just a nuisance or pestering him. Maybe, maybe God is tired of hearing this. You know, maybe we're asking for the wrong thing. We, we, we don't worry about that. We, we, we're shameless. I think of shameless prayer in the best possible way. What's a good example of that? Each and every week, and Margie isn't shy about this, she puts that prayer request card in for her sister Kathy each and every week for the past year. And Margie isn't like, oh, well, I wonder if Dave and Matt and Bridget are tired of praying for Kathy. 
Or I prayed enough for Kathy. Or, you know, she, she prays every week. God, give Kathy the healing, the wholeness, the health that she needs for this week, and that she would draw closer to God through this experience. I love that shamelessness. I love it. And so as we pray for the things in our lives, as we pray for Elevate, let us be shameless. God, let this project happen. God, bring more people here. God, either, you know, change the hearts, change my heart if I'm a hater or, or silence that part of me. God, bring in, in, in the resources, bring in the money. And God, I don't really think we can do this. Prove me wrong. And that kind of shamelessness in prayer, it really only makes sense when we understand who it is that we are praying to. Because that kind of shamelessness, rudely interrupting, going, bothering someone, being annoying, asking them, just demanding things from them, it's completely inappropriate in most relationships. But there is one kind of relationship where that sort of shamelessness is normal, to be both bold and annoying in asking for things. Can you think of what that relationship is? Children to their parents. That is where shamelessness is, is not normal. If you're not being shameless, you, you know, like, what's going on? And so Christian prayer, it really only makes sense when we understand our relationship to God as that of children praying to the one whom Jesus told us to address as father. My kids, they will come up right up to me and they will ask me for whatever it is they want at that moment. They are bold and annoying at the same time. And that describes at least one of them to a T. And as an aside, let me say, though, the best aspects of that boldness and annoyingness are beginning to emerge in him. Or they'll say, mom, 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 mom. It's like the family guy where Stewie goes, mom, mom, mommy, mama, mama. They do that to Amy all the time until they finally get her attention. She will try to ignore them, but they will not be silenced or stopped until she says, what? What do you want? They are bold and annoying. They are shameless. And so relating to God as Father, that's part of the revolution we need in our prayer life. You know, so often we go to God like he's our boss. And how do you make requests from a boss? You know, you, you, you send one email, make sure you put enough exclamation points in so it doesn't seem like you're angry or mean, uh, but not too many that you seem like a, a psychopath, you know. And, uh, you know, you wait a week before you sort of broach the subject again if the boss doesn't bring it up to you or respond to your email. And, you know, if you want to get a hold, you kind of go to the door and tap on the door and you go, can I just, if you have a minute when you're free, if, did you get that? Because can we talk about that later? You know, you're very uh, apologetic and meek in what you're asking for. And when you make a request, you, you don't simply make a request. You know, you come armed with all of your justifications and, and reasons why this should be answered. You've got your PowerPoint, you've got your, 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 your justifications, your arguments ready. Even making the request, you almost feel bad for doing it. But Jesus makes it perfectly clear. God isn't our boss. God is our father. And so the right thing to do is to be shameless. Because God doesn't employ us. He doesn't tolerate us. He loves us. And he wants to bless us. And that's the whole point of that last little story about, you know, earthly parents not giving kids who ask for fish, serpents, or egg scorpions. The point of this parable isn't how God is like an earthly father, but it's exactly the opposite, how unlike God is of an earthly father. And so Jesus' point, he says, hey, you earthly fathers, you're evil. That's very strong language. But even you don't give your kids bad things to hurt them. And so he says, if that is true, how much more should we trust that God will provide us with good things? And so who are we praying this prayer to? A good, good father 
who wants to give us good things and who knows exactly what we need. And so how does this relate to Elevate? God is generous. God wants this to happen. And so let's start praying like this and for this shamelessly, shamelessly. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.